Do we actually need to speak into the mic? Yeah, I think you do. And do you want me making eye contact with the camera? Or am I allowed you to can... gaze into your stormy blue? I mean, I'm going to have to shake these glasses that you come all in all hot with yours. I mean, they're not vintage Ivans like mine, but... Uh... No, Warby. Oh, are you trying to flex on the on the glass? Yeah, these are, these are very vintage nice. Vintage what? Ivans, Japanese company. Uh, what's up, buddy? Noah Garden Schwartz, if you don't know, we're glad to have you here. What, you, are you, what, what a you, smooth start that was. Could, no one's smoother than me. Well, we can edit anything we want, if I want to. True. I mean, what do you think this is? Everyone gets so held up on making it. You don't have to make it perfect. Yeah, no, I just didn't know if we were like really going right in, but apparently well, I, we are. Well, you got so. here, and I said, hey, is there anything you want to talk about? And you said, no, you know how we do whatever's cool well, and I was yeah because like, wow. you're, so, like, you're one of the few people that have always just been incredibly comfortable with conversationally you're a gifted you know conversationalist what? so it just kind of flows when i'm around jay larson it you wasn't even it, it, it wasn't me literally when i met you we were working together in atlanta correct and you were like uh i think you were like do you want to get did we get lunch yeah probably so you were like so endearing you're like, you want to get lunch and i'm like yeah and, and you're like yeah let me take you by my house i want to show you my house i'm like all right i guess i'm gonna go see your house you were one of the first people I'm like, oh, if you want to hang with someone, you just put them in that situation. And then you're like, oh, all right. Yeah. Well, I I typically don't hang out with a lot of comedians outside of comedy other yeah. than the ones like I started with that I have a true friendship with. But you've always been a very naturally funny, endearing guy. I've enjoyed your company. So people like me you know yeah. what i mean yeah. in small doses Correct. I, can, I can be i can be a little much speaking of small doses a mushroom cup is that that's not you don't get down like that i'm microdosing. are you it's, really no oh. fuck no well there's like this whole new jay larson that you're you're not drinking right not drinking so i figured maybe you threw in some microdosing with it i did used to do mushrooms but not like uh never microdosing. are you talkative on shrooms like, do you try to be the life of the party? No. If if I'm doing shrooms, it's with, like, one to two people tops, and I want to be in nature. You're going inward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have a tough time. I can't be, like... I look at mushrooms as, like, a religious experience. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I used to do shrooms all the time, and I, I like, kind of stepped away from drug use in general. When like, was this? Uh, I probably, I cut back on the weed smoking probably three or four years ago where like I'll still smoke every now and again. You mean but when I, you started becoming successful? Yeah. When I started, ha <laughs> when I started having shit to do, I, when I, I stopped doing drugs. Started I, writing on an Emmy nominated TV show. No, it was, um, before that comedy yeah, knockout. Yeah. Well, that was the Emmy nominated. That was the Emmy yeah, nominated. Yeah, that was, um, no, I mean. It was one of those things where, like, as I got older and the weed got stronger, it just stopped agreeing with me the same. Yeah. You know, and, and like, there was a while where I was, like, fighting it because it was such a strong part of my identity. I used to feel like for decades I was an all-day, everyday weed guy. So I was just like, this isn't right. I've got to fight through this. I'll smoke more and smoke more and get more because I'll to show it. this goddamn weed. Yeah, and then finally I just had to be honest with myself. Like, this is no longer fun to me. Like, yeah. whereas it used to have no negative effects and only positive effects, now I was always anxious or paranoid or uncomfortable like yeah i would same thing happen i would smoke and need to stretch for 30 minutes just to like kind of bring it all down <laughs> i've never heard anyone <laughs> yeah. say that oh oh that was the only good part about it and so now now like if it's been a really long week or something at the end of a night i'll, I'll smoke a little bit with my wife because she still likes to smoke but but uh how old are you i'm 35 
Trying to think when it was around thirty one, thirty two that weed stopped being as fun to me as it used to be, and then it just kind of phased out. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty close too, to be honest with you. It was like thirty three or thirty four, but I had already been like tailed back from like when I used to smoke all the time. Like I used to wait mm. tables high. Yeah, oh yeah, which is crazy. I, I have no idea how I did that. No, I I could see that actually being great. Like you probably got good tips and be kind of loose. Yeah, but like now I think about it, I'm like, nope, I can't. I don't want to be. High out in public, you but, know what I mean? but like I used to, weed was really and, nothing. And the whole like, country is, by the like, way. Like, yeah, I never did, and still don't consider weed a drug. It's like fine, weed is separate from. I I went through a shroom phase where I probably did shrooms twenty or thirty times in a year and a half span, where I like real like I would casually take shrooms if I just looked on the calendar and had nothing to do that day. But like, yeah, maybe I'll eat and eat the shrooms and go walk around New York and just yeah. see what happens. And now. My body has just kind of moved past all of that. The drugs just don't agree with me the way they used to. Yeah. Now it's like a whole ordeal that can send me into a tailspin. And so I just... Well, so. since giving up the booze, I look at mushrooms and I'm like, I don't think I could ever do mushrooms again. I don't know what I, I wouldn't know who I was. Yeah, well, I'm. I think I'm scared to find out who I am according to the shrooms. Now that my life has taken a more serious turn, according like, to the shrooms. Yeah, well, well, the shrooms will let you know. That's a great that autobiography, by the way. According, according to, to the, the shrooms. shrooms yeah. yeah. Well, dude, even with now that I have kids, I'm like, so what if I went somewhere to do shrooms and then like you get the call that like, oh, something happened and you're just like, what? I don't know. I mean, that's people being like, well, you still get, you still got to live your life. I'm just like, especially since I gave up the booze. I went away for a weekend with friends and everybody was do like the edibles and weed that was there was like nonstop. It was immense, you yeah. know, and uh, and it's all legal. And then we had a ton of booze that I brought up for everybody. And then but I didn't do any weed. And I was just like, yeah, I'm just like kind of like I love being so straight up that that everything is just what it is. Like every experience that I'm feeling like when things are awesome and things, I'm just have way more clarity now. I'm like, Oh, it just feels great because I love all the stuff around me. And I know that it's only coming from being alive. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not like pro sobriety in that. Like, I think this is the better. When did path. I say it's I was pro sobriety, dude? I'm not, I'm not sobriety. I'm not sobriety. You're so awake now to the world around you. <laughs> you know, I'm woke, bro. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm yeah. Sure I'm All right. So let's also tell people where they can find you because there's a, Noah said, Hey, I got an album coming out. I'm like, All right, how good could it be? Um, Thank you. You're so generous with your platform. I appreciate you letting me come I on I also think it's like we met when I was recording my album. So yes. you were there for every Yeah, taping. so pay it forward. I yeah. set you up for success, man. I was warming those crowds up like crazy for you. I mean, warming them down, son. Uh, uh, no. Give me a place to rise up. Hey, have you ever seen someone get an alley-oop and they just refuse to fucking dunk the ball? I was just lobbing it right in front of the rim and Jay couldn't get it. No, it was, it was a great album. I do remember, though, you were like, I'm like... I'd be listening to you because that's when we first met. I'm like, Jesus, this guy is just a straight up joke writer. That's like when I knew you were yeah. a really strong writer because you craft jokes. You know what I mean? You're yeah. a guy. You're, there's very you, few comics that don't do much on stage and get huge response. And you're one of those guys because it's well-crafted yeah. jokes. Yeah. I mean, I uh, I could, I can very rarely do what you do. Like, I'm 12, 13 years into comedy. I'm very comfortable on stage, and now I can do crowd work. I can riff, but, like, you and I have completely opposite styles. Like, I feel like you do a lot of crowd work in the moment or kind of right on stage. Yeah. I can almost never take what feels like a funny idea and go right on stage. Be like, all right, let's see what happens. Let's see what I stumble into. I need to know 
where I'm going with the joke and what I'm saying. And yeah. And because of that, I feel like I don't have to do a lot of moving and all that. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like a little bit of a dig, but whatever. Uh, wait, so we're, let's Instagram. Noah Twitter. G at Noah G comedy on Instagram and Twitter and Noah G comedy.com for the website. Yeah. Trying to cut back on social a little bit though. Yeah. Horrible timing right as I'm releasing an album. Couldn't bad decision, but I've cut back completely. Basically Instagram is like the only one I use and you're doing a lot of, it's like the new trend in standup now posting the videos with the captions and you, yeah, I'm just like, I have all this content and I don't do the road as much as people would like me to do. And I'm like, well, if you, Start if you found me because of the podcast, or if you found me because of the wrong number joke, or you found me. Here's other stuff that I've done because it's not like anyone saw my half hour. Only hardcore fans have, you know. Oh, I know about that. Wait, so are you doing it more as a content dump for fans you already have that like this is what you Both. may have missed, or are you trying to branch out to a new? Both. I want I want to give it to like people who follow me, and at the same time I want to like get other people to be like, yo, if you don't know me. This is stuff that I do so that when I continue to do stuff, they can see it. It's not like, uh, excuse me, I just have it. So I'm like, why am I not sharing it? You know, like, dude, my whole perspective on stand-up changed watching Eddie Murphy's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Have you seen it? No, I've heard about it. He just said one thing that I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, that's my whole stance on stand-up. What was was his mic drop? What was it? He goes, I would do stand-up for free. And I was like, I mean, after he signed like a $70 million deal. Yeah, I was just about to say. But like I was, I, I said to Kate, I'm like, that's exactly how I've, I've always felt that way about stand-up. Like I never looked at stand-up as like, how can I get money out of stand-up? I always looked at it like, oh, I like getting on stage. And but, I don't know if it's like. But if you weren't successful at stand-up, would you do stand-up for free if you had a full-time job elsewhere and you were still open mic? And like, is it about the joy of just getting on stage and sharing your ideas with a room full of strangers or. I mean, like, this, is it easier to say I would do stand up for free when you no longer have to do stand up for free? Dude, I did stand up for free for so long and I continue to just do spots in town all the time, which are essentially for free. I just like doing it yeah. and I like crafting my jokes. Like, put it this way like, if my full time job was stand up, you know, where I was putting out an hour special every two years and I was, I, I just feel like it would be. Um, There'd be too much pressure on the idea of stand-up, you know, and then it wouldn't... I like to live my life to then do stand-up, you know what I mean? Yeah. All my jokes are come from things I experience, but I don't want to put pressure on my life to make it be the thing that funds my stand-up. You have a much healthier work-life balance than most stand-ups as well, in terms of like actually being a present father and family man. That that seems to be the focus of your day-to-day. True, true, maybe. It is definitely a focus, but I would also like to like, if it was writing and acting and producing was the thing that was funding my life, I would be like, then fuck oh. these kids. I'm <laughs> out. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you Splinter Alley. Go, go Fucking do what you Figure gotta do. something else out. No, but I would still like, um, I would still uh, do stand up without worrying about like how much money it's going to bring me, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but you just did this album, which so, which I is, I think is, is this your first album? Second, Jay. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, second I'm so prolific second album no. yes this is the second album I did uh, I titled it White Man Can't Joke that's right L- literally just because I was just looking for a clever title and like a fun cover art and my second favorite movie is White Man Can't Jump so it was one What's of those your first things- favorite coming to America oh okay 
strong. <laughs> it's a strong one too. It's, Coming to America, why you can't man. jump. But it was one of those where I was literally like taking a walk and the idea just hit me like as soon as I played around with the wording, I was like, oh, I can see the cover art right there. I'll dress up as Billy Hoyle and boom, album's done. And I'm very excited about it. I think it's a really good album. I love the title and I love the cover art, but I was also like after we went through with it, I had that moment of like, oh, in these politically charged times, are people going to think I'm one of those like men's rights activists, crusaders like, oh, white guys can't even say anything oh anymore. Oh, my you know? God. That's... Luckily, everyone has gotten the joke and has just gone with like, I get it. You're spoofing the movie and it's a clever title, fun For cover sure. art. But I'm sure people who don't know me or some form of Googling is going to be like, Noah Garnsworth's a white man can't joke and have the wrong impression of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, with but the all album. they need to find out you write on the Marvelous Miss Maisel and be like, oh, clearly that's not the angle he's playing. <laughs> right. uh, where'd you record it? I recorded in, uh, in like right outside Detroit at the Comedy Castle. Oh, Mark nice. Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle, which, which uh, was kind of fortuitous because I was originally scheduled to record it somewhere else. I don't want to say the name, but... I had it scheduled to record somewhere, and a few comics who had played the room were like, it's a great club, horrible place to record, because it's huge cement floors, and I'm not a draw. Yeah. You know, and so... Not, not even close. Not, not even close. Um, so, I needed a place that would, like, bring in a crowd, regardless of who was performing there. Sure. And, uh, and so, once I found out it wasn't necessarily ideal, we looked on the calendar that I had. I was supposed to record June 1st. And this was like very beginning of April when comedians were like, you probably don't want to record there. And on my calendar was Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. And a few people were like, oh, yeah, it's a great room. They pack it out regardless. I would record there. And so we just kind of rolled the dice. And we're like, fuck it. Worst case scenario, it doesn't go well and we'll find somewhere else. But I went and had a fantastic weekend. So shout out to Mark Ridley and the Comedy Castle. That's great. I always wanted to go there. As a matter of fact, I did. I did. Um, when I did Montreal in 2005, someone came up to me and they're like, dude. Mark Ridley was losing it during your set. Like, you got to have your agents follow up. And they did. And uh, I've still never done the room. Yeah, apparently and someone gave you bad intel. That was 14 years ago. <laughs> um, so I've heard really good things. Dude, there's not a club in Michigan that I don't like. You ever done Ann Arbor? No. Oh, it's awesome. No, I... My first experience with Michigan was doing like that string of poor paying one nighters along the like upper Michigan, like Canada, Michigan. The UP? Just, yeah. Still still a lot of fun. I've never done it. I only lived in New York for like a year and a half. That's like a New York thing, right? Yeah. I think it was a Yoda run. At yeah, the time. okay, yeah, yeah. But uh Grand Rapids, bro. Yeah, when when does this does this are are we live right now or two when days, is this? bro. Two days, okay. Because the album comes out when? Album comes out Friday. I'm doing Corden tomorrow, which will be yesterday by the time this comes out. Oh. Isn't, isn't time crazy? Let me take some shroom tea. The, fucking, don't fucking tomorrow's touch that. yesterday, man. Dude, everything's Check out everything, son. Uh, yeah, so. So Corden. Those are the night. only two things I'm doing to promote the album. Corden and Jay Larson's through line. How do you like that? Do yourself that? a favor. I mean, how much is the album? Ten bucks? Nine ninety nine. Not even ten. Not even ten bucks. Get the damn album because it's going to be great. Available on all the platforms. You know what? Honestly, I would say buy it. But if you want to stream it on Spotify for free, I'm not going to be mad at you. Just listen to the jokes. I make art for the people. What you should do is go write a review. There it is. If you're going to not buy it because you think 10 bucks is too much for... At least write a review. Just go write a review because that's going to help. Um, is it clean? No. Is it dirty? No, it's not dirty. It's it's my comedy in general. Like It's, it's definitely not put it in the car with your nine-year-old kid and just 
right work. on worry free. <laughs> I mean, it depends on but, how you roll at home. But, yeah, no, but I'm uh, like I'm not out there trying to offend or like I don't have shock value jokes, but it's definitely not clean. There's sex talk, drug talk, and curse words laid in throughout, but it's not like vulgar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say I would say it's a solid low grade R, high grade PG thirteen. Low grade, so it's like a coming to America. Exactly. Do you know my coming to America story? No. Eighth How grade. I? I don't know. In eighth grade, we had a substitute teacher, Mr. Bacigalupo. That's a great name. Yep. And so he. Oh, hold on. To be a substitute teacher with the name Baca Bacigalupo. 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 Yeah. How thick was that guy's skin? I mean, he's oh heard it God. all. Yeah, he had. Um, he was solid. Super nice guy. But we. Eighth grade, and it was science class. So you remember those like black desks that went all the way across, like yep. the science tables. Yep. I was in the back, and this kid who I went to school with, Ramon Khan. So me. many good names in this story. I'm into it. He brought me coming to America, and we were gonna watch a video that day in class. So while he was taking attendance, I crawled under all the desks up to like the TV, took out the video, put in coming to America. And then went back. So he came over, pressed play, and it opens with the royal penis is clean, sir. I mean, Bacigalupo's got Bunsen burners on the you, brain, and, you know and what I'm in saying? comes Eddie getting blown by the bathers. <laughs> Gotta love it. So this is the kind of things you can expect from from white man can't joke, you guys. And uh, A little better. <laughs> he sent me the principal office I got host. Did he really? Yeah. Nudity, bro. Oh, yeah. I guess so. There were some titties. I mean, yeah. But I was like... Phew. Legend. Nowadays, that would be a free the nipple campaign. Oh, you you were legend for for slipping the coming to America. Yeah, you kidding me? He puts it in, take and roll. He thinks it's no big deal. All of a sudden, that comes on, and I snuck that thing. That's oh, it's crush fest. Science was uh, that was the one subject I always struggled with in school. Oh yeah, I'm a smart guy. Always did well. English, math, history, no problem. Science struggled like hell. Even though math and science kind of go hand in hand? Yeah, because it wasn't phys like biology, chemistry. I mean, I guess there's some good math and chemistry, but uh, it just, yeah, I, science never clicked in my brain. And I'm interested in it, too. I wish I was better at science because I like it. I wonder why that is, because there's no definitives in science almost? Yeah. I That's when math fucking fell out for me was when, when numbers weren't exact, you know? But also, I was like at the height of my degeneracy in high school so it's like that's when i was just high non-stop and probably how, how are you getting high in high school where was this this wasn't denver. denver it was denver, denver colorado you had two denver upbringings didn't you yeah well was, what do you mean didn't like, you have religious jewish upbringing and then regular upbringing or no because i always look at you as like a hardcore jew yeah you're so very we're... you're very committed to judaism yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean I'm yeah, I'm very proud to be culturally Jewish. I I still practice religion much more than most like passive Jews in America who just kind of happen to be Jewish, but I'm not yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm very committed to Jewish I mean, living in my everyday not, life. Right, okay. Like I don't go to synagogue regularly or anything. Right. But, but you go to like Seders and you go to like Yeah, yeah. And I yeah, okay, yeah. You know what I mean? Like as a guy who's like blazing weed every day in high school you were you're still a guy like who's participating in their religion and yeah i would say i would get high as shit and then eat a kosher variety of munchies really yeah are you still kosher yeah have you always been kosher uh well i grew up in a kosher home but like high school no i mean as a kid i used to break it all the time like i used to as soon as i had my bike and was old enough to ride to taco bell or burger king it was cheeseburger city baby really? oh <laughs> oh i couldn't get enough of it yeah i used to i used to love unkosher fast food that was my jam 
Well, I mean, it was the forbidden fruit. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's I'm, I'm why. allergic to shellfish. Okay. Uh, so I've never been able to enjoy that. But like now, but isn't I, that I, anyway? Don't eat, you I don't right. But I don't eat pork by choice because of religion or yeah. because okay yeah. yeah. But red meat you do. Yeah. Okay. So you've never had bacon, or you did? Oh, I, oh, oh! I've had bacon. Oh, okay. <laughs> there were years when I exclusively ate bacon and pepperoni. No, but but it was like uh, it was one of those. As a kid, I didn't care at all. It wasn't until I was adult that I made the choice for myself, where I just kind of stopped eating pork. But yeah, like all growing up, as long as my parents weren't around, I couldn't get enough of unkosher food. Interesting. So you just got married, and Esther's Jewish. Yeah, it was a very if, Jewish way. If you, know you think cool? Esther Steinberg is yeah. a Jew, well, now she is Esther Steinberg Garden Sorts. I mean, not high. She just replaced her middle name with Steinberg. And this is how committed she is to comedy. She only did it because she thinks it's a funny name. My God. Which it is. Yeah. Esther Steinberg Garden Sorts. That's pretty great. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, the, the wedding was awesome because we had basically an Orthodox Jewish wedding with outside of our families, a mostly black and gay friendship group like most of the non-jews that were there just from our lives were black or gay non-jews and so it was like a really cool uh merging of all the different cultures because jews were happy to have a different group of people like to have some diversity in the synagogue and really have like yeah. some some fresh blood and excitement and all the non-jews were really leaning into the cultural stuff that was foreign to them they were like fascinated in a nice way and really participated and it was great well jewish weddings i've never been to a full jewish wedding you know what I mean? 40-minute horror. Really? 40-minute horror. We brought That's in... That's what you had? Yeah. We brought in a guy uh, specifically for the Jewish music and then had a nine-piece Motown band for like the after-dinner dancing music. Oh, man. We had two. We had a Jewish dance set and then a regular wedding party dance uh, set. Did you guys change outfits? No, and I should have. I I, br I brought three shirts and could have worn all three, but yeah. after the horror, I was so soaked that I was just like, "Fuck it, this is the shirt for the night. I'm not changing out. I'm just yeah. getting, this is what it is." I see. I went. I love. There's. I didn't grow up. I knew one Jewish kid growing up, Craig Stillman. Oh, I feel like with the names you gave me in your earlier story, I was I was, I was well, hoping for something better than Craig. This Stillman, is how like but. how I didn't even know. Jewish names as a kid yeah. that I went to high school with Lynn Feldstein and I thought she was Italian. That's because she was like dark skin, so ridiculously stupid. She lived in like the Italian neighborhood. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Italian and Jewish, it's like right there. It is, but it's but it's yeah. not. But, you know but, what I mean? but yeah, I hate to break to you, Lynn Feldstein, and not an Italian. <laughs> no, but I never like I never knew anything about Jewish culture. It wasn't until I moved to LA because you're from like suburban Massachusetts, suburban Massachusetts, yeah, and North Shore. You go the other way, then you have like Newton is a very Jewish population. That's where my uncle, who's a rabbi, who conducted our wedding, is from. Dude, if I meet anyone from Massachusetts and they're Jewish, I'm like, oh, where are you? Newton. It's Newton. They're Always. from that area. So we just, I just wasn't around that culture and that religion at all. I went to one bar mitzvah, which was Craig's. Yeah. And so then I moved to LA and I met tons of friends that were Jewish. And then I remember being like, same thing. We're like 26, 27, drinking or smoking day afternoon. Like, what are you up to tonight? It's like, ah, it's Friday. I'm going to a Seder. I'm like, what's a Seder? It's like, I got invited. Like, people were getting invited and introduced to other people through religion because they're so big about having community and family. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, I... Well, that's why I'm dressed like this. I don't normally dress like this. I was coming from a bris. One of my high school best friends had his fourth baby boy this morning, and so we went to the bris. Very un-Jewish to have four kids. Um, how was that? It was great. 
Great networking event. Real Hollywood powerhouse. Yeah? <laughs> no. I mean, yes and this no. This is the no, circumcision, right? Yes, it was a circumcision. You know you know what's funny? And, and it happens everywhere, but the Moyle, the guy who, yeah. who cuts the baby's uh, foreskin off, was murdering with jokes. Like, really? Like, Moyles always have jokes, and it's a very specific kind of corny, I'm going to play to the room. Yeah. And I'm sure he uses these jokes every single week at every event. But he was fucking destroying. And Esther and I were the only comics in the room. And we were like, this motherfucker. Yeah. Like, we were, yeah, like so jealous of the last he was getting. With little shit like, to start the circumcision, he opens the diaper and goes, it's a boy. And, you know, just like <laughs> cornball shit, but was getting the biggest laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't like, because so I, I have this guy, like anytime my iPhone screen breaks, there's this guy who has like this back house in West Hollywood and he fixes phones and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. it's he's a Jewish guy, always is wearing the yarmulke. Uh-huh. Yarmulke. Yeah. What's the, there's another name for it, no? Kippah. Okay. So, Hebrew and Yiddish, but same word. Okay. You're talking about the same thing. But that dude, when he, he knows I'm a comedian and he'll start asking me these Jewish comics. He goes, yeah. do you know so-and-so and so-and-so? I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah, they go to my temple and they like, they do a circuit. They do like, they perform at yeah. synagogues. Well, that's like, I, I don't do them as much, but before, before I like had a little bit of success in stand-up comedy, I would make my living doing the Jewish circuit. Like I was doing the federations and Hillel's and I have a whole separate Jewish hour of comedy and they are the absolute best and worst gigs. Cause like I love being around older Jews cause they're just funny to me, like intrinsically, but I, they yeah. are a fucking pain in the ass to perform around because they all think they have better jokes than you. Like every old Jewish man just has <laughs> 50 street jokes in his back pocket that he can't wait to tell you. Yeah. Well, the other thing I was going to say is they also like, I know dudes that like punch up for rabbis. Yeah. Rabbis like hire comics to write for them. Yeah. Right? Well, the, the high holidays, that's like the Super Bowl of Judaism. You got to come with it. You got a thousand congregants waiting for the. But that's what I'm saying is like Moyles, rabbis, they fucking murder with yeah. the jokes. But what it's like a part of your culture, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think Jews pride themselves on being funny, trying to be funny. Certainly have a sense of humor. Yeah. yeah. Um. Do you feel different since you've been married? Well, in the nine days that I've been married, I feel like I twist my ring and give advice a lot more. <laughs> I just I just talk to my unmarried friends like, listen, here's what you got to do. But no, uh, no. I mean, I feel Esther is still on cloud nine and riding the highlight. I can feel a sense of comfort and like a weight off her shoulders in terms of knowing that we are now for sure married and it's not going to backfire. Like even during the year of engagement, there's always that thought in the back of your head. Like, are we really going to get married? When's the shoe going to drop where this isn't going to be real? So now like the, the, the sense of well, comfort. Well, you guys are I, also living apart from each other. Right. For a while. I mean, we had What's an abnormal like? story. So I've never, but like, Marriage itself doesn't feel any different because we've basically been living together from the moment we met. Like, we started dating, and two weeks later, we were living together. Yeah, that and, sounds like Esther. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so, like, our day-to-day life hasn't changed at all, but there does just feel like a sense of comfort that marriage has brought her mentally that has made me happier and easier in general. What but about yeah, we the had a relationship? Is that still in play? No, we are not. No. Once we got engaged, we closed it off. But, yeah, so... Wait, did you guys actually have an open relationship? I yeah. mean, we don't have to get into details. No, I mean, I don't mind talking about it at all because it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, How long I, did you guys go open relationship? We were open for a little less in, than a year, like maybe eight months because we were long distance for a year. Yeah. And for the first four months, I was pushing an open relationship and she didn't want to do it. And then finally, 
she acquiesced to it and we tried it and it was actually me who didn't like it and yeah. and then we ended it and it was like once we agreed to stop the open relationship we were engaged two weeks later because it was just kind of like either we're going to break up or get back together and if we're going to get back together after three years and having been through what we've been through how we're going to get married how do you broach you guys have to have a really strong bond to be like yeah yo you know what i've been thinking <laughs> i've been thinking about seeing other chicks well it was and not, how long had it you was been not together? that easy it was she was not happy about it obviously but it was so what it was we had been together because i know a couple dudes that she fooled around with during that time and they said she was real happy baby wow really jay <laughs> <laughs> that that's what we're doing uh no, it was, uh, we had been together for a year and a half, two years, and I was in New York working on Maisel, so, like, I couldn't even, I like New York, I wasn't thinking about coming to LA anyway, but even if I wanted to, I couldn't, because my job was in yeah, New York. Yeah, well, you have a great job. Yeah, you know? and she had moved to New York for me, like, she was doing well in LA, and then moved to New York for me, and that kind of took a hit on her career like she sacrificed to be with me and things slowed down for her right as things were picking up for me so um she was always very supportive of my career and great about that but like was noticeably not that happy in new york and so i supported her moving back to la to get her career back on track and we didn't want to break up but i also had to be honest with her about the fact that like i've done long distance before and doing long distance with no end in sight like if you're really moving back to la and if things happen for you and you're just going to be there then maybe we need to try to open things up a little bit because i don't i don't want to cheat on you i also don't want to break up but I can't be in a monogamous long distance relationship with no end in sight. Yeah. And so she basically I hope everyone's taking notes out there. <laughs> she basically agreed to give it a shot but was heartbroken. Like it, it wasn't like fine, let's do it. She you know, I was dealing with a woman who was crying for hours next to me very upset because the man she loved basically told her he needs to fuck other women if they're going to be right apart and which isn't what you were really saying but that's what she was hearing it wasn't what i was saying but it also was not not what i was saying right you know because like it, the reason i wanted to be in an open relationship wasn't so i had like someone to go to dinner with and company it was like yeah i yeah. need to get laid right. while she's in which is LA. which is what she needed with those two dudes that i know of if you, you know don't... i mean of the people i don't know how many they were <laughs> see total, the but... thing is you and i have this report where i know you're joking but they don't know you're joking and now that look at you fucking scumbag what do you think they think <laughs> um and so the thing is we approached it from completely different angles and it was me who ended up really not liking the relationship or not liking the open relationship but it had nothing to do with the sex involved because i started sleeping around with absolutely no emotional commitment i was just like a single bachelor having fun again mm -hmm. and she found one person to spend a lot of time with and that's what bothered me like when she told me that she slept with this guy it didn't hurt nearly as bad as like when i would try to call her and couldn't get a hold of her because she was hanging out with Whoa. this guy you know because it was like dude i literally just got like crazy anxiety. that's what i'm saying because it was like when I when I proposed the open relationship, I wasn't naive enough. Like, I'm going to go fuck all these chicks and she's just going to sit at home. She loves me. You know, like I knew totally. she was going to sleep with other people. And I would never ask Esther to do something that I wasn't willing to do on my end. You know, so I yeah. like I truly wasn't from like a male chauvinist point. Like I could fuck whoever I want. You can't fuck. And I was like, by all means, if we're going to be open, you yeah. should. But like she is not into sleeping around. She's she like likes connection so she yeah. was like if i'm gonna do this then i'm gonna find someone that basically becomes boyfriend number Woo! two and 
and you don't know how you're going to feel about something until it happens, you know? So, like, in my rational she, she mind... She put you in the G League, son. I'm telling you. Or the G League. She put me you on a 10-day contract. D. She put you on a 10-day. She's like, listen, I don't know. Well, I'm coming to New York when yeah, you're getting called up. Because it, it was one of those things where, like, ideally, my rational mind was like, that's exactly what I want. I don't want my girl sleeping around. I would much rather you find one guy, as long as he treats you right and respects the situation, then that's perfect. And he did respect, like... I can't even. He, I can't he even was hear even, you say... Listen, I just want some of the treats for right. Well, no, because it's like if if you knew you were going to be in an open relationship with your girl, would you rather her sleeping around with random dudes or like find one guy that it's a, a safe situation? L- like your rational mind would be yeah. like, I want her to find one partner to be safe with. And that's better than her just fucking whoever, whenever. I've been married now nine years. We've been together 13 and the idea of an open thing always seems like a fantasy world, but literally hearing you talk about it and then thinking and putting myself, I'm like, oh, that sounds like the worst thing ever. Yeah, and it's like, now I know how she, like, first of all, even though we're nine days in, we are happily married. I'm not interested in opening things back up again. But I do think if she and I approached it the same way, where it was strictly a sexual need, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily be averse to the idea of us having other partners over the course of a lifetime if it was truly like just sex but because she she's unable to just have sex because there's some kind of emotional attachment that has to happen yeah i'm not interested in opening things back up again because i didn't realize until it happened but that's what hurt like i it wasn't about her sleeping around it was about her finding someone else to confide in and spend time with totally that i was like uh this doesn't feel right so now is she living in new york with you again she's living in new york with me again um and we've kind of We've kind of committed to the idea that when I need to be out there for Maisel, which is eight months out of the year, we're in New York. And then in the off season, we come out to L.A. for a few months. And that's just kind of the agreement we struck. That's awesome. Yeah. And so now we're married, closed back up and happily living bicoastally. Yeah. And she can come out here whenever if she needs to. Yeah. So that, that's the situation. But it was God. it was rough for a while. And, you know, it was so crazy when we. The worst is I've been in situations like when I like. Where you're like, uh, I was in relationships and I'd be on the road and you get, you'd have like a fight and, and like you go on the road and you're like, just being away is the worst. Yeah, that well, time. And you got to go perform or you got to go oh write. My God, or, the, yeah, the, the amount of times I had to like go on stage after we just had an argument over this open relationship. And it's not like when you're long distance open. That's even more difficult because it's not like you can have your disagreement and then ultimately look in each other's eyes or or have sex or do anything like hold each other to make you feel right. We just had to sit in that discomfort 3000 miles away, which yeah. made it which made it difficult. But it also made it easy because you had an open relationship. So yeah. you could go. You know find uh, no, but uh, what was interesting is at a certain point in time, we both were just like. It, it's obviously not working. So we actually did break up for like a week. Yeah. And in that week, we kind of forgot that my cousin, who she's also very close with, like she's very close with my family, we just completely forgot that she was getting married. And so like the week we finally broke up was a time when we had to be at a family function together for a wedding. And I gave her the out. I was like, listen, if you don't want to come or if we're actually going to like let everyone know that we're broken up. And she was like, no, I'm close with Amy too. Like it's not even about you. I want to be at the She's wedding. Like, I was going to call you and say the same thing. To yeah. You. Yeah. She was <laughs> like, I'll tell your dad you're not coming. I'm going to that wedding. And, uh, and in the week that she came to the wedding, we were like kind of broken up. That's when we finally seeing each other is when we 
kind of fell back into like what are we doing of course you're at a wedding right like once we were able to spend time with each other that's when we kind of started phasing out the relationship we're like all right let's give each other a few more weeks to phase out of it and then within a month we had ended the relationship and then within two weeks of ending the open we were engaged and now we're married who asked who who asked who what to get married I asked. So, is that even well, a no question? Well, no one asked her. She probably well. She she picked out her ring before I asked. But yeah, it was it was like it was she one of those things it up where three like years ago. Yeah, true. But no, as soon as as soon as we ended the old relationship, we knew we were going to get engaged, and I knew what kind of ring she wanted. But but I did the I dropped down on one. You know what? I do regret. I could have had a very funny comedy proposal because we were still long distance. Like she was phasing out of L.A. And she flew into Newark at five in the morning and I borrowed my sister's car to go pick her up at Newark. And there was part of me that wanted to propose in the Newark airport just so she would have to say for the rest of her life that she got engaged at the Newark, Newark airport. airport. But <laughs> I, had, I had mercy on her. I took her back and proposed in New York. That I crossed day? state lines. Yeah. You crossed state lines then it was like, over? Yeah, it was funny. It was 8 a.m. when we finally, like, by the time she landed, we got the bags, got back to New York, got to our place in Brooklyn. What I did the night before, I went and bought probably 150 roses like the entire apartment was covered in roses and lit candles and she walked in and and she knew we were going to get engaged but she did not know i was going to propose then i actually even told her this was middle of july and because she knew i got the ring because she had basically picked it out i told her it wasn't going to be ready until the end of august so she actually was completely surprised when i dropped down on one knee yeah but because it was 8 a.m and she had just come on a cross-country flight it was like i proposed we hugged we kissed and then both went to sleep for like four hours oh my god yeah well that's what do you need to do you know there's something very there's something super adult about the idea of like being in a relationship testing it with a situation to see if you could do it because you care about the person and then realizing it doesn't fit you know what i mean well then yeah i mean i i feel confident in a in our ability to have a good marriage going forward because we've tested the waters and we've like, it's that whole cliche. If you love something, let it go. If it comes back, it's yours. Like we've been through that and we decided to come back together. And now we hurt each other in the process. Like there was pain and scars that need to heal on both sides. We both hurt each other. Um, And now that we're healed, we're back better than ever. And you do, I mean, I mean, you do at the end of the day have to ask yourself, does she still think about that guy? You know what I mean? What? Because he probably was very special. Just, I mean, I'm not saying I know him. It's just some of the other Oh, dudes. I thought it was two. Well, Does she think about them? Well, right? it was yeah, the I'm two, talking about those two, two other guys. The two guys that were telling you that she was so fun. No, those are the two I'm talking about. Um, but oh, I'm, but then there was another. Then there was a guy that oh. she really fell for. Yeah, well, you know, she at least does a good job of masking it if he's still on her mind. Well, I'm not. That's, but according, according to that's her, that's the danger, though. I'm according not saying, to my wife, who I now believe and, mm-hmm. and trust very deeply, she mm-hmm. is fully over him or them. And no, and I believe she is. I'm just saying there's a little. What's, yeah, sure. What's down was, in here? You know what I mean? What's tucked down in or down you know, in there? You never know. You never know. You never know. Come but out. you know and what? That's the danger. And that's the risk of relationships. That's that's the risk of life. You know, you never know. And you guys are gonna go to Italy on your honeymoon? Smooth transition. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to Italy. Uh, we're leaving next week. Let me get that because I know my friend told me he knew a guy who went to Italy to Venice and he was out with his wife, uh, celebrating at a bar, you know, like or just part of their honeymoon. And she's like, Oh, I'm gonna go home to the hotel. Why don't you stay out? And he's like, All right. And he was hanging out with these dudes, 
What, do you know the story? No, I'm just waiting for you to tell me that, like, some Italian gondolier swept her off her feet. Oh, no. (laughs) Very different, actually. okay. She went back to the hotel. He went out to have cigarettes with these guys, and they beat him up and dumped him in a canal and robbed him. Really? Yeah. Well, that's why why I don't smoke cigarettes. Are you guys going to Venice? (laughs) Yeah. Just be heads up, man. I've heard there's some shady... It's like you... We fantasize about foreign countries... Oh yeah, but no. you, there's always going to be something, you know. Yeah, I I would like to think I'm street smart enough. I don't let my guard down like that. Like, first of all, yeah, on the honeymoon, I'm not going to tell my wife to go back to the hotel while I go out for cigarettes with a group of well, I mean, you Venetians, also, but you know, you also let her just run around down. You know what I mean? Run around LA. So. <laughs> what is your deal? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I I think we'll be fine. I I've been to Italy. She has not, but. Uh, we're, we're doing Rome, Florence, Venice, the Amalfi Coast, and then shooting over to Athens for two days because I couldn't be that close to Greece and not go. That's, yeah. Greece is the one place I've always dreamed of going. I'm pretty well-traveled, never been to Greece. And Athens, since I was in grade school learning about Greek mythology and all that, has fascinated me. And you want to see the sites. You don't want to just go Yeah, yeah. No, we're not going to like Mykonos and any of that shit. We're going to Athens to see the Acropolis, the Parthenon, and then shooting back over to Italy. So you say well-traveled. How did that? When were you well-traveled? Your family? Uh, yeah, I, I've actually been fortunate enough. My dad grew up really, really poor and didn't leave the state of Colorado until his mid-20s. Wow. And so it was one of those things where, like, he always in his mind was like, if I ever have a family of my own have the means to do it, traveling was like a priority of his, of what to spend his money on and what to do as a family. So, like... And what age did you start at? Uh, I mean... I was traveling as early as I can remember, like five or six, like domestically we would travel inside the U.S. all the time. We would do road trips um, a lot, but I would say internationally I started, like I went to Israel, Mexico and Israel were probably the first foreign trips. I remember when I was like 10 or 11. Did you do birthright? I did birthright. Um, Was that a separate trip or was that the the trip? Yeah, no, I had... I had been to Israel probably six or seven times before I went on birthright, but I had never gone on like, I had never gone on like a youth trip the way like on birthright, it's supposed to be your first trip to Israel or at least never have gone on like a teen tour with other organizations. I'd only been to Israel with my family. So, um, but yeah, I started traveling. Like we started going on international trips probably in my teens. And then as an adult, I've traveled a lot on my own as well. Like, like I told you, I used to do the Jewish circuit. Um, there's this organization called JDC, which like works with Jewish communities all over the world and they let me travel with them for free to I think six or seven different countries and to pay them back I created a new Jewish hour about like all the countries I traveled to and basically went and performed across America for free for them like I would do young adult nights and basically talk about the places they go killer yeah and so like with the JDC Yeah, yeah, you know, I was just like brainwashing the youth for free as long as no, I could I've, travel. No, see, this is the kind of thing I love uh, about Jewish culture is like birthright was another thing that one of my friends in L.A. did at like 27. Like you can go up until 27 or something. Yeah, something like that. But but what I, what I will say, and it's actually important to point out for me, the JDC is apolitical and like it prides itself on being apolitical. So it strictly is about providing relief to communities in distress across the world Mm -hmm. and so like i really didn't have jdc stand for joint distribution committee gotcha so you thought the j was jewish didn't you i didn't know what it was yeah but no so it's like because i know that the jcc is a jewish community center so i actually did have no agenda like when i would go do these shows i literally was just going to make people laugh and kind of talk about the differences it was much more national differences like talking about the different countries than any kind of like religious belief or political belief but through the organization i went to 
India, Cuba, Russia, Latvia, oh, Cuba. Yeah. yeah, and like I went, I went on a nine-day trip to India, and it's like it wasn't white Jews who happened to live in India. It was like Indians who are Jewish, and it was awesome. Yeah. Well, it's nice too that you're learning a different culture, but you have the religion to connect you. Yeah. Especially if you're white and they're, you know, yeah, white no, Jews or Indian. Yeah, and it's and it was also interesting just to see like. In certain ways, Jews are all the same no matter where you go. And in certain ways, it's like couldn't be more different. Yeah. You and know? that's, I mean, you're going course, as yeah, Jewish, as, but it's yeah. all people in general. Right. And, and so it was, it was a nice learning experience. But say all that to say, I've been very fortunate in my travels, but have never been to Greece. And I'm looking forward to seeing Athens. Um, have you ever done Sunnyvale, California? Rooster Teeth Feathers? Yeah. No. But I love the name of that. That's one of the, like, that's a classic comedy club name to me. Like, it's unbelievable. They even have, like, in their advertisements, like, funny name or, like, you know, like. Funny name, serious comedy. Yeah, or something, like, something that. like that. But it was, that town is such an eclectic group of people. Sunnyvale? Sunnyvale. You wouldn't think so. Not but at all. because of the tech industry, it brings in people oh, okay. from all over. It's one of the only clubs I've ever done that you were like, this audience, you're playing to like five different audiences. So like, it's what? It's a little bit of everyone. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, there were times when like, you know, getting everyone on the same page, you know, yeah. there were times that they would turn on things. Some people like, why did they go? And then you're just like getting a read for that room. It wasn't until like the third show. I was like, all right, I get what's going on here. Whereas you go to any other town, it's like, you're going to get a microcosm of everyone. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just interesting how the dynamic of comedy and comedy audiences changed over the years and what you're trained to do. Cause like I came up mostly in the black scene in Atlanta. Yeah. I want to talk and, to you about you and black culture. Yeah. Well, so sure we can jump into that, but, um, I came up in that scene and also was just like a huge pothead at the time. So like when I started comedy, my ideal audiences were high crowds or black crowds. Yeah. And, and, uh, maybe two months ago in New York, my friend asked me to do like a dispensary show. And I thought I was going to walk into like 10 stoners who were just kind of there. I walk in, it's like an Apple store now. It's like 150 people. And it was probably 90% black, all high out of their minds. So like, whereas when I first started comedy, that would, you couldn't have painted a better gig for me. Like yeah. an all high black crowd. Where do I sign on the dotted line? I had to work so fucking hard. Like it was just a different muscle that I had stopped working and like yeah. going and doing a high black crowd was suddenly so much more difficult than just a standard gig. Yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, just in general, I just think like, uh, high crowds or drunk crowds. Yeah. Imagine just yeah, doing it was, a drunk it was bar. Much, it was it's much more, like, it was much more about them being high than like, yeah, because I still do a lot of black rooms or have no problem with any kind of audience. But yeah, like even when I go back and do shows in Denver and it's just a high crowd, they're fun. But yeah, it's like there's a delay on the laughter and the thought process when people are stoned out of their mind. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> How funny is that That it's like a whole city now Versus like That's a dispensary You know it going in You know what's interesting though Cause I know you're a foodie Denver I have to say Their late night food culture sucks And for like A city So built around weed culture now The fact that There's not like A 12am to 5am food culture Specifically for high people Yeah Someone's missing out on A huge opportunity Cause like after our wedding I tried to like order 20 pizzas for 
the room, like people coming back to party the suite. And it took us so long to find a pizzeria that was open to deliver after midnight in Denver. And I couldn't believe it. Huh. You know, it's funny. I remember when the last time I was in Minneapolis doing shows, I, I was like done. It was like 1140 or 1130. And I'm like, man, I just want a good meal. And I found this restaurant and they were open till like one in the morning. And it was like, you know, like the spotted pig in New York, but yeah. it was there. Like it was unbelievable. I'm like, I can't believe this is Minneapolis that I can go out and get this like dope meal at this late, you know? So to get, not be able to get pizza. Yeah. Like, I was shocked. Get the, f- was it good pizza when you finally got it? Domino's. Dude. I'll let you answer that question. I'm going to tell you straight up. I love Domino's. Oh. Boo. I love it. Pizza Hut's still my number one. All right. Well, see, that's just a, a... But what I'm saying is, my point being, uh, is that people will dump on like Domino's or Pizza Hut or something like that. And you're like, have you tried it? There's a reason it's still in business. Not because they were delivering two for five ninety nine. I love a Domino's pizza. Yeah, I don't I don't love the pizza, but I will say it's accessible. And their wings that, are unbelievable. They're, they're, they're still in the game because when there were no other pizzerias around, they were willing to deliver to there the... There was no uh, Pizza Hut available to you back no, then? No. All right. Well, let's see what I'm saying. You think I would have fucking ordered Domino's if Pizza Hut was delivering? Come on. <laughs> so let me ask you. So why was it that like, uh, because dude, you're white as fuck. You know what I mean? But even when I met you, do you th- what what makes you feel like you gravitated towards black culture or you became a part of black culture or like we're in that, accepted into that group? Was it because you were traveling? I mean, I just feel no, like. No, I mean, it was a mix of, it was a mix of a variety of things like. Oddly enough, even in my very Jewish upbringing, my parents were always a big fan of black culture artistically. Like a lot of the music we listened to, a lot of the shows we watched, the movies we consumed were black artists who were celebrated. I also think um, growing up in the early night, like that was still a time when there were still a lot of parallels between the Jewish and black story. Like, yeah, it's kind of a shame to me that the communities don't seem to be as close now as they used to be. But like going to growing up with Jewish day school, like the idea of the Holocaust, the only thing that felt comparable to something people had gone through was slavery and black people. So like, I always felt a kinship basically, even though I was always very aware of the fact that my skin is white and I would never say I'm not a white man. I didn't grow up feeling like a white person because to me, white was Gentile. Like you were a white guy and I was Jewish and there was a clear divide between that. And so the culture I felt more associated to, if it wasn't Jewish was black culture. Like, black people felt like they had more in common to Jews than just white Gentiles. So I think there was a cultural comfort level mixed with an appreciation for the art. I'm a huge sports fan. All the best athletes growing up that I love were black people. So like I just grew up kind of appreciating and idolizing a lot of the culture. And then when I finally left Jewish day school, I went to a predominantly black high school and I played on the black on the basketball team. And like my first group of friends in high school, when I finally met non-Jewish kids were black kids. And then I went to college in Atlanta. And even though I went to Emory, Atlanta is a very black culture city. And so it was like, it was, it was always a natural fit where I never felt like I was trying too hard, but I was always just very accepted by the black people around me. And it was partly an appreciation of their culture and like similar interests and partly just like what you're around becomes what you gravitate towards. But mm-hmm. it was for no real reason. Like I can't put my finger on one thing, but like I've always just 
enjoyed being around black people and they've always seemingly enjoyed having me around. Yeah, well, I mean, who doesn't like being around black people? They're right. like the greatest people on the, on the planet. But you say, because I always, this is another thing I always appreciated about when I when I got around Jewish people was that they just seemed always more accepting and more like, um, what's that word? Of every culture, they just seemed like whatever. They didn't care, like because yeah. you you hear a lot of negative stuff about Judaism when you're growing up in an all white part of. Oh, do you? You do. <laughs> Did I tell you I golfed one time with my buddy who's Palestinian with a Holocaust survivor, uh-huh. and the guy opened our round when he met us. He goes, "Are you Jewish?" <laughs> and I go, uh, "No, I'm not." And he goes, "I'm a buddy." He goes, "Are you Jewish?" And he goes, "Yeah," but he was Palestinian. Yeah. And I was like, why'd you say yeah? And he goes, because I just, you know, it's going to be a lot easier to golf this round if he thinks I'm Jewish. And I was like, all right. Cut to the fourth hole. I'm walking up one side of the fairway. And he was there with his son who was like, you know, in his 70s. Uh-huh. And they're walking up the middle and my buddy's going left and I'm on the right. And he goes, yeah, well, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. And I get up to the next tee box and we're waiting for those guys. I go, what's going on? He goes, this guy's racist towards Palestinians, dude. I go, of course he is. He thinks you're Jewish. What do you think? You're around Palestinians. You're talking shit. Everyone's talking shit about other people when they're just in their own group, dude. And he goes, I don't know, man. And I was like, dude, he's a Holocaust survivor. Would you tone it down? And it turned into this whole thing. But. I, every time I've ever been around in Jewish group, I've never heard anything. You know what I mean? I don't know. It just always seemed like a very accepting group. Yeah. I mean, obviously, people in general have shortcomings and, and Jews. Uh, like, certainly, the Israel-Palestinian conflict is a blind spot in a lot of Jewish people's minds. But I, I can say this openly. Like, it's, it's not a conflict I'm going to dive into. But... All the Palestinian people that I've ever met, and certainly the Palestinian comedians I know, I've always been friends with and have had a lovely time with. So, yeah. like, so well, that's then, what my buddy says who's Palestinian. He goes, "It's the young, it's the yeah, older generation." There's, a, the there's absolutely a generational divide, especially in American Jews, in terms of like, um, like I think there are some young liberals in America who are slightly too anti-Israel because they don't understand the history behind some of the things that Israel does. But I also think there's an older section of Jewish Americans who Israel can do no wrong and you can't criticize Israel at all. And I don't agree with that faction either. Like, I obviously, there's a nuanced gray area that most people aren't able to see the other side on. But yeah. um, I, I see problems with both approaches. Yeah. Well, obviously, you can't just be done. And everyone the- knows that I came on the through line to do two things, promote my album and talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Which I'm glad because I'd like to get into it a little further. Um, tell me about Maisel. What's going on next? Are you writing right now? We just finished season three. Uh, I will say I I truly believe it's the best season we have coming out. Um, Jesus, that's high praise. Can you say, you know, I, I can't give you any spoiler alerts. I wouldn't ask for them. It comes out December 6th. On Amazon Prime. I mean, dude, you can't go to Whole Foods without getting bombarded with by Miss Maisel. I know it's one. It's one of those things. Like we were in New York when there was supposedly this Maisel Day that like turned L.A. upside down, offering like twenty cent gas, and police need to intervene and shit like that. <laughs> and I was getting texts from friends like, like people were pissed off at us and at the show, like we had anything to do with it. I was like, dude, you're talking about Jeff Bezos and like marketing forces that are so beyond me eating a pack of cheeses in the writers' room trying to figure out yeah. what Midge does in episode three hundred. Seven, yeah, you know? totally. But great show to be involved in, obviously. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, yeah, what what questions you got? 
No, just, I mean, like, what's that experience like? I mean, you had written on one show before that, right? It's, it could not and have it been. And it wasn't even a scripted it, it, show. Yeah, it was comedy knockout. It wasn't even good. It, was, it was, <laughs> wasn't even. <laughs> oh, someone's mad the booking department never reached out to Jay Larson. No, that's. Uh, yeah, no, my my only writing experience before Maisel was on a show called Comedy Knockout on True TV. So, yes, I uh, I really lucked out in the job where honestly it was one of Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, the show's creators going into season one, they knew they wanted to have a few comedians in the room to just help with comedy consulting, making sure the standup felt authentic and not even about the joke so much as like, what does it feel like when she bombs? What does it feel like when she yeah. does well? What are the frustrations of it? And so, uh, they saw, I had a half hour standup, special on comedy central that had recently come out and my agent sent them that and they liked my comedy enough to meet with me and they sent me the script and i fell in love with the script obviously and we went and honestly we just talked for two hours like i went on the interview and we just hit it off and it's like prior to this show i had submitted for maybe 20 or 30 no exaggeration writing jobs with writing samples and sending in scripts or sending in packets never got past the second round the job that literally changed my life and is an award-winning show. I never even submitted a writing sample for it was, totally. I went in, met with the show creators. Cause half the thing is when you write for a show, you have to spend hours on hours in the room with people. So half the battle is like, can I stand being around this person more than I'm going to be around my family? Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm thankful every day they took a chance on me. One of the things that they liked about it, though, was my varied background. Because one of the things we talked about in the interview process is I do regular stand-up. I do college stand-up. I came up in the black scene. I have a separate hour for Jews. And they liked the idea that I could be informed in writing for a comedian who may have to entertain various types of circles. Yeah. So and that, gave gave me you, a that gave me a leg up. And it gave you your first acting role, which... Can we just say hit it out of the park? <laughs> it was so bad. I'm such a bad actor. No, you say that, but you you remember what did you tell me about? Do you remember what you told me what you were thinking when you were doing it? No, what you said to me, you're like, I didn't realize. You said something along these lines that you didn't realize when you're not in the scene, you yeah. still have to be acting. Yes, yeah, so my my biggest issue is reacting or not. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because I didn't know I was going to be on camera for so much of my scene when it wasn't my line. And yeah. there's literally like, first of all, Rachel Brosnahan is in front of me, so no one should be looking at me during the scene. And anyway. all I was doing, but, was like, of course. Well, all right, no. But I literally there was like a minute of dead air where I'm just in the back like this. <laughs> and I was mortified. And so but, what, you don't like acting at all? Well, it's not it's not that I don't like acting at all, but it's not a passion of mine. It's not like what I'm working towards. I yeah. I love stand up, I love writing. If yeah. someone had a project that they wanted me to act in based on who I am and they think a character would like be natural for me to be, yeah. but as far as honing the skill of acting and taking on a character outside of myself, that's not where I'm interested in spending my time getting better at. Yeah. No, I hear that. You gotta, you have to have focus. But honestly, the the whole reason they gave me the role, aside from the fact that I played a comedian, they wanted someone who could go up and comfortably tell jokes. Was it was kind of an inside joke. Amy Sherman Palladino knows that I hate not having a beard. She knows that I hate my unshaven face. And the comedians in the late fifties didn't have beards, and so she she basically cast me to fuck with me. It was like yeah. an inside joke in the writers room where they basically gave me the job just to force me to shave the beard and make me hate my face on TV. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's the kind of shit you need. That's what keeps morale up in the, yeah. in the writers room and keeps a, a storyline for like eight weeks. But no, I, I have learned 
so much from the process and like one analogy that i love to give when people ask me what it's like working on the show or like how it's affected my career the paladino like the Maisel writer's room doesn't operate like most writer's rooms from what I understand, where it's like everyone has one show that they're going to write a script and it's kind of like a big, everyone's pitching ideas at the chalkboard. It's like Dan and Amy are such bosses in the industry. They're legendary TV writers and they know exactly what they want to do. Where'd they come do. from? Tell people where they came from. Uh, Gilmore Girls, Dan Showran, Family Guy for a while. They both wrote on the original Roseanne back in the 80s. They're people who have been writing yeah. for TV for almost as long as I've been alive. and um, And so... They have such a vision for what they want that it's not about like, so the analogy I like to give is Michael Jordan with the Bulls, right? Like Steve Kerr didn't need to be Michael Jordan. He just needed to hit the shot when Michael Jordan passed it to him with three sure. seconds left. The Paladinos in the writer's room, they're Jordan. They don't need me to go score 20 points a game. They just need me to hit the shot when they pass me the ball. Yeah. And then as a result, what is Steve Kerr doing now? He took all the knowledge he learned under Jordan. He was coaching the Warriors, which went on to be their dynasty. So, like, I'm making sure I hit the open jumper when they pass me the ball, mm -hmm. and I'm soaking up all the knowledge so that one day I can go be the Steve Kerr of a new organization and take everything I learned from them and start my own dynasty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, take over the world. Why not? <laughs> well, let's see how the album is first. You know what I mean? Yeah, White Men Can't Joke is the first step on the ladder of world domination. What was your first album called? Blunt. Blunt. So that was still very much Weedhead Noah. Yeah, so go get White Men Can't Joke. If you love it, then get Blunt. Sure. I mean, I don't know if you're going to see any residual effects from that. No. Uh, financially speaking, uh, usually in that first album. You heard about Prince. Fucking think about how Noah got hosed. Um, Noah G Comedy? At Noah G Comedy, yeah. Um, well, thanks, buddy. It's always good to Thank see you. Thank you for having me. You know what I mean? You, anytime you're at a brist, you can always pop and by pop after. right on. I'm on the west side. Why not? You know it's, uh, yeah, it's great to see you. Great to see you doing well. And congrats on the wedding. And, the, and I can't wait to hear... It's going to be some backlash yeah. from the open thing, but, you know, whatever. That's all part yeah, of Yeah, I it. mean, listen, since you're so close with all the numerous guys that obviously were having so much mm -hmm. fun, just mm -hmm. tell them to back off since we're newly and married. And I'll get some insights from them of what she likes. Sure, and then let me know because clearly... Yeah. Thanks, you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks.